welcome to Behind the Soundcheck, a podcast dedicated to bringing you all of the stories from behind the scenes of the Aussie music industry. As always, I'm Tiana, the host of this podcast. I hope everyone is having a fantastic day, whatever you're up to right now. I am currently not so secretly in my pajamas as we speak. So clearly peak adulting over here right now. Also, I have to pause for a moment here and interrupt this intro to say, today we are up to episode nine of Behind the Soundcheck, which actually means that next week is the last episode for season one of this podcast. What? How did we get here so quickly? But let's get on with it and get stuck in episode nine straight away, music and the everyday. So far in this series, I've chatted with musicians, marketing gurus, media types, and more. And my guest today is also a musician, but with a little bit of a twist. Currently balancing bass duties for Brisbane prog ponies Caligula's horse, while also undertaking a PhD, Dale Princey is a man of many skills and interests that extend beyond the stage and into some pretty high concept realms, spanning the use of music, as well as the role of artificial intelligence in the music industry and beyond. And while this lovely individual has toured and performed extensively both at home and overseas, and is perhaps best known to many for his performing and musical skills, Dale also frequently gives me a run for my money with his sociological know-how and dazzling insights into one of the most universal aspects of music in general, how this sonic phenomenon we call music is used in our everyday lives in this digital age. So today we're going way beyond the stage and studio and stripping music back to its very core fun times, and potentially horse noises ahead. So, Dale Princey, thank you so much for taking some time to chat to me today, and I hope I'm not intruding on your usual rock and roll adventures right now. Uh, rock and roll consists of uh, sitting at home and drinking wine. So, no, not at all. That, that, that is a little bit rock and roll. Is it? Oh, cool. It's Friday night and I'm already in my pyjamas, so I think you're already one up on me there. Killing it. Mm, yep, rocking, rocking hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, as many people are aware, you currently sling bass for Caligula's Horse and you obviously just recently completed a jaunt in South America and the US, which by all accounts was just a wholesome and lovely time for everyone involved. It was. Delightful. And I would like to touch on your own musical creativity later on, but to begin with, I'd actually like to kick off chatting about another huge aspect of your life. And that is your current adventures in musicology and music in general and kind of touching on an overarching theme today, which is how music is used in our everyday lives. But before that rabbit hole commences, let's chat PhD. What prompted you to start that journey and when was the last time that you slept? Uh, sleeping's, for, sleeping's for vampires. Wait, no, did vampires sleep? I, vampires sleep. During the day, uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, oh yeah, that's right. They do. So yeah, I'm a vampire. Um, I actually, I got the idea for starting my PhD when I was sort of introduced to the conservatorium, probably through high school. And just the idea of doing a, a PhD at the time was kind of an interesting thing. I never even considered studying music. And then it was like, oh, you can go on and do other stuff afterwards. Obviously at the time I didn't really know what, uh, what sort of a PhD entailed. And so it was just a, it was the idea really that stuck with me. But yeah, it's been it's been going on for a while, and then once I did my honours, I think that was probably when I decided, oh yeah, this is the right thing for me. I kind of like it, kind of like reading reading books and writing words. So yeah. Yes, and as a result of that adventure, I know you have been delving a bit more into lots of different facets of the music world, including AI technology in the music realm, and a whole heap of things that can, I guess, shift how one looks at music and consumption. And while the overall purpose and definition of music can obviously be a very subjective opinion, 
I have an inevitable and broad question around quote unquote purpose to kick us off here. Why yeah. is music so important to us humans from your perspective? There's a lot of factors that, that play into it. I can't really think of a day that goes by where music isn't a part of my life. And I, I suppose if anyone's listening to this, probably for them as well, considering you'd be interested in music. It's, there's, there's a lot of reasons it's important. It sort of plays into our social lives a lot. Yeah, it's sort of a, a thing that we value in culture, I think. You know, the fact that we go out and support live music and local musicians and everything, that's, that's pretty important, I think. And playing with friends in circles in rehearsal rooms and sort of connecting on that level, that's pretty important. So yeah, it's, it's just a way of communicating that's outside of regular language and you can sort of suspend your daily lives at any one time and exist in a different world for a bit. Yeah, that little escape to the other side, so to speak. Mm. I guess looking into what you're touching on there, I, what I find really fascinating is how intrinsic music seems to be for not necessarily just kids, but younger kids, especially as more and more people of my generation are having children, you kind of notice it. And one of my most favorite things I've been seeing is like when my niece was a little bit younger, we were in a lift and there was just some background music playing and I didn't even pay attention to it. And she's just suddenly, someone flips a switch. She's just bopping and dancing, no questions asked. And I realized <laughs> I'm not, I'm not actively pushing it out to the side, but you just see that warmth and that enjoyment and she's just engaging with it. And Again, my nephew, my one-year-old nephew, he's even instinctively headbanging in the backseat when Slipknot was playing on the radio. Like it's kind of fascinating to just see how they just seem, uh, they seem to have this whole different way of engaging with it, I guess, to how I feel like I do now that I'm in my 30s. (laughs) Young and 30. Young and 30. What are your thoughts on that kind of thing? Do you think that as we age, we kind of tend to push it to the back a little bit more or do you is there something more scientific to it? I am no expert here, but you yeah. have a I, lot I'll, more expertise. I'll, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'm, I'm not really like an expert, I would say. I just have like a, an interest in the topic, I suppose, is probably a good way of explaining my position as a first-year PhD. <laughs> You're one up on me already. <laughs> <laughs> it, it comes down to a couple of things. There's different, different demographics that we can look at with, with music. One of them is generational and generational needs to be sort of separated from age demographics for a number, number of reasons. Generations are sort of informed more by history and world events, whereas aging sort of insinuates that, you know, uh, I'm just going to get older. And so what I carry with me is going to be just part of like an aging thing. So prefacing that, older people kind of value music a bit differently, specifically uh, baby boomer generation. They sort of they sort of use music in a different way to us. Actually, not really use it at all. They they are active listeners with with music. So the idea of having background music at a shopping center is really foreign to them. Because for them, back in the day when they had phonographs or they just had radio in the in the lounge room, for them it was an active process. You go and sit down and you listen to records play on on the phonograph, and that's like your family time. That's the equivalent of TVs nowadays i suppose with with us mm. and and that's that's really curious because a lot of us use music in our chores and on our way to do stuff that we don't really want to do or maybe we do it at like dinner parties or something like that as well like i'm sure there's different uses that you sort of have for for music a lot of them would be like travel or going to the gym or something like that right mm, yeah absolutely it's like i've got different ways of Listening to stuff, if I'm in the car, I kind of need something that's going to keep me awake at an ungodly hour of the morning and then 
I'm going for an angry walk and I just need to get all my frustrations out. Obviously that changes it as well. So yeah, but you're right. I remember even being slightly younger and I think I was just on the cusp of that whole record playing, like everyone had a record player in the house and I remember my parents would put something on. I can't for the life of me remember what it was, which just <laughs> is terrifying, but it's true. And more and more now, yeah, you sit down watching television, there's music in the TV shows, but it's not a, at the forefront. So yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And the, the background music sort of side of it is, is a bit of an interest of mine at the moment as well. If, if you're at all familiar with the term Muzak, it's basically furniture music. Mm. I think it was Eric Sarty that sort of came up with the concept. He's like a, a pianist from, I don't know, from 19th century, I'm pretty sure, like French pianist. He came up with the term furniture music when composing a three-part series. And the idea was that it shouldn't be in the foreground. It should sit as a piece of furniture in the house or in well they didn't have shops back then but yeah in the house it's it's like easy easy kind of listening piano music but it's still beautiful and that sort of got a bit perverted later on in i think the 70s when muzak corporation sort of started making all of these jingly style sort of songs for malls and and for shopping centers and that's when it really took off and people started realizing that their entire day was just surrounded by music and they didn't know what to they didn't know what to make of it because it doesn't really evoke anything it's just there to calm you and 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 the role that music sort of plays in in terms of shopping centers is is something that i'd, I'd like to get into a bit later on as well because that's kind of interesting as well insidious in its own sort of right uh that's actually on my list you psychic psychic man <laughs> hey hey I've got, cameras hey. I've got cameras in your house oh god i'm not wearing harry potter pajamas you can't prove anything um <laughs> um to put it into perspective, I guess, from where I kind of come from, part of my day job, I get to curate some commercial music for some television shows and I, do, I deal solely in the commercial side. So I'm listening and, you know, actively trying to think what will this engage, will this work with this? But the production music side of it just blows my mind because that is stuff purely designed to just sit underneath and its only purpose is to colour up. There's no emotive kind of thing to it. But at the same time, there is countless endless lists of these songs and these composers are just churning this kind of stuff out if you yeah. from a creating perspective what are your thoughts do you think has it reduced the creativity like these people are obviously still doing something and still making something that's being used but how does that differ from like creating a song for a Caligula's horse song or something to be performed and actually engaged with with an audience yeah 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 awesome awesome question it all comes down to what there's, actually, it comes down to two different parts. It comes down to you as a composer, what you intend for the music and what you want to get out of it, the sort of process that you undertake, the struggle or the, the fun that you have creating that song. So that's one aspect. And then the other one is what do you think this effect will have on people? Mm. And the answer for that question is pretty obvious. It's just there to fill the silence. So it's like meaningless. People don't want to pay attention to it, really. I don't know too many people, and I think it would be pretty fair to say that going to listen to Muzak would be a bit of a, a weird sort of thing, right? Like listening to listening to elevator music with your friends at a dinner party, that's kind of a bit strange, right? Uh, but the other side of it as a composer of, of something like background music, I can't really say. I, I, I think if, you, if you're just intending to make a, a soundtrack for people's lives, there might be something nice in that, but I've never heard anything that's particularly inspiring necessarily. So if you're not writing music that other people are inspired by, how can you be inspired by it? 
It's kind of amazing. It's an art form that when done well, it's not noticed, which is, I think, a really strange way of having something creative, but there it is. Yep, yep. I'm definitely with you. I'm definitely with you. Mm. Now, you did mention earlier too the whole generational thing and going broader, again, as a kind of humans as a species, it's obvious, music obviously has held a strong significance for us for centuries and the whole oral tradition aspects hold pretty significant cultural importance and is a pretty huge catalyst for cultural and, and historical preservation. And back then, going back centuries, hundreds of years, however far you want to go back, it had sturdy, significant meaning and purpose. Do you think that present day music still holds these level of significance, given we're living worlds apart from those days? Again, another awesome question. I, I think it just changes. I don't think it's less value necessarily. I think it's just changed the way that we value music. Mm. Spotify is a pretty good example. It's probably the low-hanging fruit, but it's a a good example of the way that we care about a a music release nowadays. Because we're not going out and buying a CD. We're we're not investing time into getting into our car, going into a store, grabbing the CD, paying our money for it. And then, you know, if it's a bad CD, we'll feel like we're betrayed somehow or feel like we've kind of wasted our money. We don't know what to do with this product anymore. If it's if it's on Spotify, that's different because you have this filter in between you and the artist that you're paying money to. The artist is getting an incredibly small amount of that. And if an album gets released and you don't really like it, you don't feel as betrayed because you're just subscribing to this thing that you're going to pay money for anyway. So it's kind of changed that aspect of value, I think. I'm not sure if if, if that if that's sort of something that you would you would identify with or not. Yeah, I think I'm not I'm not kind of saying that it's more disposable, but because we have everything at our fingertips, I think it it doesn't lose its value either for me because I guess for what I do, I'm actively look seeking out music, but for so many people, they stay in their comfort zone, which is what I was doing, you know, give or take 4 years ago. I was just listening to the same songs every day. I knew what I liked and I didn't really branch out a lot and it's all there. We have this endless world now of music everywhere, but it's so hard to get people to just take a punt on something even when it's digitally. Like Mm -hmm. it is so different because there's less risk. I still remember buying CDs and liking the two lead singles and then just sitting there going, oh, my God, I hate the rest of it. And now it's just going to become this thing that takes up physical space. I was a brat back then, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I I think that's a really valid point. And I read something almost... Actually, it might have been today that echoed that exact same opinion. A lot of people pay for, you know, maybe one song, one or two songs off a CD. They're usually the singles that have been released first anyway, so you're not really getting any extra value for your music there. But there's another there's another one that I forgot to mention, so, sorry, as well, was the the sort of pay-what-you-want scheme that really went through a big fad in, in like 2011, 2012, that sort of era. Yeah. I think that's that's at least when I started noticing it anyway. I think it's fallen out of vogue a little bit compared to Patreons and stuff. Yes, yeah. So that, that that one's a little bit different as well because the the artist promises sort of a policy or or that they'll supply you something. So you've already changed the way that consumers are sort of treating the artist at that point. You, you, the expectation is that I'm going to get something, and if you're not supplying that, then it's like my service is not being fulfilled. It's that that's pretty easy for those ones, I think, to to assume that, but. Pay what you want is a bit different as well. It's a, It was an awesome concept. I just think it fell out of vogue a little bit. Mm, I wonder. It'll be interesting to see what the next thing may be that may overtake the Patreon thing as well. I'm 
fascinated to see where that next step goes to. Well, yeah, if if we're already doing subscription services for Netflix and YouTube and all of these things, then it makes sense to do it for music. Help the help the artist survive every month. Hell yeah. Well, and I think that's the thing. Ultimately, it has it seems to have reduced the pirating aspect to a certain extent. I you know on the surface because now that people have have it readily available, you don't have to wait. You can have it delivered to your door. It's like having Uber Eats. You can get any food you want <laughs> here, so you're more likely to. Maybe want to do the right thing, hopefully. So hopefully there's that sort yep. of aligning as well. Yeah, swipe right on the album. Yes, swipe right. <laughs> um, I know I mentioned earlier too that the definition of music can be very subjective. The one that crops up in terms of the creation and creative side of things is that it's an emotional outlet. And whereas for the listener, it can act as that emotional outlet as well as a bit of escapism or just general entertainment. I mean, there's so much more to it, obviously. But as we also touched on earlier, that factor can actually also manipulate us. You know, there is so much money getting poured into the retail sector to curate music, to maximise sales. And I know Mm. when I worked in retail, the amount of time and effort that goes into companies specifically designed to generate certain things and be what they think the people want this brand to be. And just, yeah, it was such a fascinating thing to watch because I just wanted to play what I liked. Like if I walk into a shop and I hear a song I like, I'm like, yeah, I want to stay. Yeah, definitely. It's 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 a form of of territorializing. I think mm. if you if if you think about when you were younger and your parents would go into a shop or or even the other way around, if um if if you're a, a male going into the female section mm. of of a of a shop, there's a reason why we feel like we're uncomfortable and it's territory. If you if you have a a shop that's trying to sell you a clothing image that music's going to go along with it you're that's just what happens with music it's a part of culture and if you if you have people that are i don't know dressing in i don't know what the shops are these days what are the, what <laughs> these are the, kids what are the in their shop shops like? <laughs> <laughs> you know like top man Topman, for example it's it's like a like a hipster hipster short sort of sort of uh store if they're playing alternative music that's what you're subscribing to this is my image you know yeah, yeah, and it goes in hand in hand. The rare occasions I do go shopping because I actually legitimately hate shopping, but I went into a store and they had that very typical skater, Aussie punk, I will not name the band because there's 20 million and I don't want to offend, but <laughs> it, um, and I was just not in the mood to be pandered to. And then this yep. hell surfy guy comes out and he's like, oh, like, Got, you know, trying to literally hard sell me leather shorts and which is Did a bold, uh, well, um, it was a bold look. I wasn't ready for it. I regret it. It's a life regret. But I just felt the whole, it was so overwhelming to me with this music just aggressively in my ears and this guy in my face. And I just, I panicked. Like I just literally had to run out of the shop. Um, yep. Never went back, never went shopping again. I've, I've I've read a lot on it just in the last few days, actually. Tia Denora has an awesome book called Music in Everyday Life. It's a little bit, I think it's like 20 years old now or something like that. So it's a little bit outdated. Uh, but she mentions, she, sorry, she does a study of about 52 women in the book and sort of how that plays into their lives. And it's kind of frustrating because there's no uh, there's no, no male perspective in there as well. So I, I just think that was a bit, just because the scope was really small, I think she just had to limit it or whatever. Um, or she just wanted to concentrate on on that specifically. Uh, but the way that a lot of women reported going into shops was being subjected to that loud music, like you said, but they also use techniques of colour and uh, lighting and smells even to 
make people stay in specific sections of the shops. So if there's a product that's not selling, they'll sort of dole that up a little bit. You know, if they're coming in, they look like they're at a young crowd, then that that's the kind of music that'll be playing. Yeah, I mean, I like my music heavy, but not when I'm being shoved in the face with a pair of leather pants. So. Yeah, definitely. That's Judas Priest tunes right there. Oh, well, now I regret it. I could have actually rocked it at download when Judas Priest were playing. So, damn Thank it. You. And as we have discussed the whole thing that there is music kind of constantly around us, and like I mentioned, I find myself not actually actively always realising it. We do have this ongoing soundtrack, and obviously, as we also touched on, the ramp up of streaming and the onslaught of technological advancement as well. And music obviously kicks over into scientific territory with the cognition, emotion, behaviour, kind of all churning in the mix. And you also mentioned the elements of the social bonding and the expression stuff that does extend further. I guess for me, what I noticed when I was looking into this a bit more, there's a lot of academic and mainstream study into the brain and psychology with regards to music. But the studies did seem to be really limited in terms of musical experience on an average day-to-day basis. I mean, some people swear to listen to music when they're studying or working out or mentally rehashing the awkward moments from their fifth birthday party, which definitely not me. But um, (laughs) narrowing down the consumption of music to an everyday thing, does having so much access and exposure to music all day, every day actually limit its impact or ability to become a special experience? I've come across something recently that suggests yes. I think it might have might have been an article I was reading yesterday that suggested the amount of listening that we're doing is either impacting on our actual physical physical listening ability, our our ears. And I think because we've been listening to music so loud for so long, that's been affecting our ears. But yeah, there is the the other side of it as well, which is just the sheer amount of exposure, listening to music all day, every, every day, sort of desensitizing your value for time spent actively listening to music. So yeah, I, I think there's value in that. Mm. And as I went down that rabbit hole, they were saying as well that people did react differently to music depending on what device they were using, which I found quite fascinating because I guess it can depend on various things, you know, phone, laptop, whatever. And that kind of ties into more of the technology side, I guess. And that was something I would love to delve into for hours on end, but in a shortened <laughs> in a shortened world, what role is technology and the advancement of artificial intelligence extending beyond that playing in music and interaction? I mean, I feel like there's so much going on in that world that isn't on the radar for a lot of people. What are the basic implications of how that is evolving in the industry? Yeah, absolutely. Breaking it down into a couple of different categories, you've got, you've got sort of artists that will be using artificial intelligence music. You've got businesses got people who are just going to be listening to the music themselves either users or consumers of music and producers basically the way that a lot of the average folk are going to be integrating or using ai music is for very simple sort of terms it's going to be like your middle sliders like character creation on a video game is is kind of how the the average person is going to be using artificial intelligence music on their phones for example so they're releasing sort of apps that allow people to make their own music, but it's really basic stuff. It's, it's, do you want a happy song? Do you want a sad song? And you sort of move the slider around or whatever, or you sort of just like input input uh, selection criteria. Uh, how fast do you want it? Slow, fast, m- mid-tempo, whatever. How long do you want it? And that's the bare bones version of it. I don't really know what that sort of music really means, if music can can mean anything. I don't know what people are going to be getting out of that necessarily. I can't really hypothesize what 
someone's gonna what value someone's gonna get out of something like that where it's like i now own an original composition but i didn't really work for it you know it was kind of just presented to me someone created an algorithm and i was just a part of that process i was just clicking yes at the end of it so i don't, I don't really know what that means for the the consumer but it, it, it's set to sort of change the way that people use music for sure and it certainly challenges what we're gonna or who we're gonna define a musician as or an instrumentalist as because mm. you, you're going to have a whole bunch of people who are musically untrained yet they're creating compositions so what does a composer mean oh, it's literally just a person who compiles sections of music who creates an original idea compiles a bunch of stuff and creates a song that's a composer are these people composers we don't really know and then there's the the other side of it with artists who, who are sort of set to use these tools sort of functioning creatively whether it's uh, generating drum beats or something like that you think of like top 40 sort of sort of music this is kind of like the producer's side of it as well but top 40 music or maybe it's like an electronic drum loop or something and you you want to describe to the algorithm hey i wanted to sort of sound like like this electronic art like a kendrick lamar beat or something like that or you know uh, a devon townsend electronic drum groove or something you know and i want it to be at this tempo for this long and here's where the the backbeat is all of that sort of jazz that's that's how the artist is sort of going to be able to use it and there's already a couple of versions of that in like logic and garage band their early versions of ai algorithms using using like drum loops and bass grooves and all that sort of stuff so there's that side of it and there's also like a real time side to it as well where they're creating algorithms that can respond while you play something and maybe generate a bass line if you're a drummer or a drum beat if you're a guitarist or something. And that's, that's really cool. That's kind of a bit of a novelty, but it's, it's still really cool if you're a kid playing your guitar in your bedroom or something. You know, that'd be freaking awesome to toy around with. Yeah, it opens up a huge world of possibilities and opportunities. I don't know, for me, it's a double-sided coin. I just, all I can think of it is like in a really, really stupidly simplistic way of the outrage that happened when the self-serve checkouts came in, you know, we're losing our jobs <laughs> and uh. but yeah, again, it's something I'm so fascinated by and a bit overwhelmed by, but just to touch on that. So there's an idea of redundancy that comes with artificial intelligence a lot. And it's a worry. It's, it's always a worry when we think of self-driving cars or anything like that. That's what a lot of people are worried about. Cause it's like, where are all these taxi drivers going to go to then? And this has happened time after time. We've we've faced an industrial revolution and repeatedly we've found where people can have jobs. Sometimes it gets real shit and I'm going to be probably lucky enough to not be one of those people. But I, I, think, I think we're going to bounce back from it in some ways, but there's not a lot of ways that artists or musicians are going to be made redundant necessarily by AI music. In fact, that was kind of the, the start of my, my thesis. That was kind of my question is, are musicians going to be made redundant by the introduction of artificial intelligence music? In a couple of ways, kind of. So businesses that start using AI music to, I don't know, generate their own theme song or their own soundtrack for a, for a promo video or something. Yeah, there's, there's not really going to be a lot of jobs for that once we figure out how to make a basic drum groove, bass groove, guitar part, keyboard part, and vocal part. That's going to be eaten up by businesses who no longer have to pay millions of dollars in royalties to one dude who just made a one-minute song for them. That's going to blow the lid open for that, you know? So it's, it's kind of good in a way because there's going to be content creators, like young people who are all of a sudden able to make the content they want to do 
at the same time as not having to find an artist or a musician who's number one competent and number two cheap for their youtube channel or something you know or their facebook content their instagram content all of a sudden you're going to have these people that have a world of opportunities opened up to them because of that so that's my optimistic side anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. There's got to be some positivity. And mm. the positive note is I feel all industries obviously have evolved so quickly, but I feel like the music industry is one that every time a huge, really big change or advancement happens, it seems to adapt. Like whether or not it's for the greater good or anything, it does seem to be one industry that kind of realises we can't beat them, join them to a certain extent. So yeah, I, I think the positivity is good. I think we have to keep it there. Otherwise, we might have Skynet on our hands in the near future and <laughs> to relaunch hope... Terminator. <laughs> oh, I'm so going to do that. <laughs> Let's do this after. <laughs> um, and to quickly finish up the more formal aspect of this, I think it would be a crime not to quickly look into the part music plays in your own life, given we are looking at the whole creativity and consumption aspect of it and you are someone who is very heavily involved in that side of things in your musical life. What is your personal day-to-day <laughs> musical experience like and how does your everyday musical consumption impact your own creative output? Ooh, big questions. Uh, so for me, a typical day, I mean, I went on, so I went on tour last year and uh, realised the incredible musicians that I was surrounded by in, uh, in Caligula's Horse and Circles and I Built the Sky. And that was a big wake-up call for me then for my own musical practice because i was seeing i was seeing you know like rob brenz from i built the sky sort of like after after every show just obsessing over his drum solo or something like that and that's i don't know there was just something about that environment something about that time that i found really special and came back to australia with a new sort of revitalized idea of what kind of musician i wanted to be and so nowadays i just practice every day (laughs) it's 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 a pretty cool routine that i'm in uh i'll i'll be able to knock out two hours of practice a day including like any writing any sort of vague ideas uh for Caligula's horse as well um what was the second part of the question i'm so sorry oh, i've already scrolled past it um how does <laughs> i totally know everything that i'm saying god <laughs> um, and so off the back of that how does your everyday musical consumption impact your own creative output hmm i think i'm definitely more influenced by the people in real life than i am by the music that i listen to I have found on occasions the more that I listen to heavy music, there's like a reason I'm listening to heavy music and it might be because I, cause I'm cranky or something like that at the time. So it's like I listen to a lot more heavy music and then all of a sudden it's like I'm writing stuff with distortion rather than, you know, uh, sort of clean, delayed sort of stuff instead. So, yeah, I suppose to a certain extent that that plays into into my creativity as a musician. Mm. Cranking out some break stuff by Limp Biscuit, perchance. Oh, you know it. Actually, I, I watched I watched the Woodford documentary recently and there was the it was the Woodford of ninety nine, I think, when when Limp Biscuit did break stuff and they incited a friggin' riot across the whole thing. I'm not, crazy. I'm not gonna lie, I really, really like that song and I request I think I requested that the last time I was in Brisbane. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were out and we, we got, yeah, we got got our groove on. Yeah, I am not sorry. <laughs> well, I know with so much of this stuff, there is so much we can go into and, uh, you know, I don't want to put everyone through that. But, um, yeah, it's really fascinating <laughs> to think of. But capturing a little bit more of yourself and getting to know yourself a little bit more, I am going to venture now into my lightning round, which I'm calling the Soundcheck Sound Off because I like alliteration alliteration right yeah <laughs> um <laughs> essentially with the lightning round i'm just going to ask you a few quick questions and 
you just need to answer as quickly as you can without overthinking your answers if you are oh, ready. No. Oh, no, are you nervous? I'm not ready. Do you need some nervous I'm... crying time quickly? <laughs> do, you, do you nervous cry? Is that a thing that you do? Uh, uh, I'm unsure. I'm... Okay, good. <laughs> so we'll give it a try. If you need to stop and, you know, take a moment, that's totally fine. So we've spoken a lot today about musical experiences. What's your earliest musical memory? Oh, awesome. I was driving to Wollongong, I think, with my dad and we were listening to uh, Metallica in the car and we were driving along the sort of, uh, yeah, like the mountainous part through the middle of, I can't remember the mountain was, but yeah, I was listening to like Load from Metallica. That was probably the earliest one. That was probably like like five, four or five maybe. That's pretty badass. I like that. Yeah. And I think my mum went to Red Hot Chili Peppers concert with me in her belly at the age of zero. Oh, damn it. That's amazing. The badass yeah. life of Dale Princey. I like it. <laughs> 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 um, okay, so for question two, what genre or genres do you find yourself drawn to in your personal listening time? Your band history obviously leans to the proggier persuasions. Do you jump on similar or perhaps contrasting genres in your downtime? Definitely recently. I've been uh, basically because of Sam got a lot into Oliver Arnold's and uh, Nils Fram and a lot of minimalist composers recently. Mm. Uh, that's, that's just really cool to have on as background music. Some of it, some of it's really emotionally evocative because it's just really touchy, subtle, sublime sort of piano music. So I've been drawn to that a lot recently. Uh, if I have, if I have the ability to put my speakers on, then it'll be something pretty thick with a double C. Um, it's, the only way. <laughs> it's the preferred spelling. Yeah, exactly. It's the only spelling from my knowledge. Mm. <laughs> a lot of uh, a lot of sort of early sort of jazz jazz stuff as well. I've got a couple of jazz records here and there, and if I'm feeling classy and making dinner or something like that, then I'll uh, I'll I'll put on some jizz. Yeah, swelling a brandy while you're cooking. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> fancy Dale. <laughs> okay, so number four. What's the most memorable gig you've ever played? Whether it was memorably good, bad, or hilarious. Oh, okay. I think I mentioned this last night to my friend. It was down the Gold Coast, and I think my drummer at the time had drunk the entire rider, and that was like a hundred bucks on the rider for four of us. So he'd done that before we got on stage, and then ended up saying that he wanted to fuck his girlfriend over a microphone. <laughs> that was that was that was pretty memorable. Oh, <laughs> something the for the sentence. kids. Yeah, exactly. I, I'll tell their kids about it one day. But for the for the sentimental side, I think the most recent show in Chile was probably the most memorable show that I'll that I'll have. That was that was pretty incredible. What made it so memorable? Oh man, uh, it was like first overseas show, and there was there was a lot of people there, and we we're all real excited, and people were really excited, and there was a priest in the audience. That was crazy. He was lovely. He came up after the show and said hello. That was that was really really cool. But it was just a very emotional crowd, and yeah, it was it was definitely palpable the the sort of back and forth emotions between us. Beautiful. Okay, next question. Since you are in a band named after a horse, <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to. Oh, ask am this. I? No, no, no. Uh, uh, <laughs> let me get to it. What breed of horse do you identify with most? And surely it has to be Clydesdale. Oh, it actually isn't. Oh, damn. Yeah, it's a it's a Destria. I'm I'm, I'm going to have to look that up now. I'm going to have to get a yeah, reference yeah. picture. And is there any yeah, particular yeah. reason for that? They're old school war horses. Ooh. They're not they're not that majestic. They're just war horses and they're badass. Mm, very apt. Uh-huh. <laughs> I like it. And they and they go nay. 
They are, can you do a nay for us or is that? No. I didn't. I, I, I thought we were going to get through this with no sound effects, but you've just you've uh, ticked off the first sound effect. Oh, yay. Yay. Well, let's finish off the lightning round here. Hypothetically, you've just won the lottery and you're an instant millionaire. After you've nobly shared a cut of your winnings with me, what do you do? Stick with music and your studies or pursue a secret hobby? <laughs> uh, definitely stick with, uh, stick with music and, and study. This, this is definitely, definitely what, I, what I love doing. I don't, I don't see myself doing anything else for a long time. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. And I'm secretly excited you didn't actually say no to sharing it with me. So, oh, damn it. It's public, verbal contract. We all heard it. <laughs> <laughs> if I don't deny it, it's, it's written in spit. Oh, yes. It's, it's now become <laughs> law and canon. <laughs> okay, Dale, let's close out that chat today. I am asking all of my podcast guests to share with me a song or sound that changed their life, a sound or a song that has heavily impacted you, whether it's been professionally or personally and something that still recalls a special moment for you. So, Dale, name your song or sound. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think I'd, I'd be amiss not to mention, if anyone hasn't heard of the, the track before, 4 Minutes 33 from John Cage, which is like an experimental sort of avant-garde piece. And if you haven't heard the piece, just pause the podcast now and then immediately resume it once you've listened to it. Uh, that, that, was, that was a pretty profound moment for me in understanding what music was or how we can come to think and conceptualise music. I think that's, a, that's one that a lot of people need to go and think about because it raises a lot of questions all the time and it makes us continually challenge our own understanding of what music is and what other people are doing with music as well. It's just a really good catalyst for thought, I think. So, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm... I- can I pause the podcast quickly and go listen to it? Can you just hold the line? No. Hold the line. Okay, right no. Oh, are you gonna? Are you gonna? Are you gonna play elevator music? Don't you dare! Oh, if only I had "Girl from Ipanema" hooked in. Oh, I was gonna say "Girl from Ipanema." <laughs> <laughs> well, Dale, it has been absolutely lovely to chat to you today. I'm especially proud of us. We only made one horse sound effect the entire time. Um, but that's that's progress. It is. I'm really proud of us. Pro, did you say progress? Oh no! Oh, I'm out. I'm out. I'm sorry. I'm done. It's over. Shut it down. I'm... He's gone. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been especially awesome to explore a different side of music with you. And I know there's a lot of exciting things happening for you. There's new Caligula's horse music on the radar. There's a whole lot more that is to come. And obviously, eventually, we may all have to call you doctor. So, thank you for making the time in your schedule to chat. And do you have any parting words? um that's my that's my uh my my sign off yeah just that noise a signature dale princey sign off (laughs) that's what i'm known for (laughs) thank you so much dale not at all man thanks so much love ya love ya too bye 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 well there you have it episode nine of behind the soundcheck officially done and i cannot thank dale enough for letting me nerd out with him for today's episode He is certainly a gentleman and a scholar, quite literally. Thank you for joining me today. Whether it's your first time grabbing a listen or you've managed to stick with me nearly to the end of this first season, all previous episodes of Behind the Soundcheck are available right now either over at my website, The Soundcheck, which is thesoundcheck.org, or if you are listening to this, you know how to find podcasts. I'm not going to bore you with how to find it. Just plug Behind the Soundcheck in somewhere online and you'll find what you're looking for. An outro of this podcast would not be complete without a massive shout out, fist bump, double finger guns and so forth to the beautiful Osaka Punch boys for loaning me their sensational track Hall of Shame for my theme song. And for those listening to the bitter end, 
Be sure to tune in next week, not just because I want to talk your ears off again, but next week will actually be the last episode for season one of Behind the Soundcheck. What on earth am I going to do with all of my spare time after this finishes? I'll probably have to start talking to people in real life. Good Lord. Anyway, I hope you have a most excellent rest of your day, whatever you're getting up to out there. And I hope to hang out in your ears one last time next week. I'll see you then.